you bow your heads with me? Let's pray from Psalm 100. Heavenly Father, we know that you are the Lord. You are the one true God. And it's you who have made us. And for those of us who are trusting in Jesus, Lord, we are yours. We are your people and the sheep of your pasture. And we enter your gates this morning with thanksgiving. We enter your courts with praise for all that you have done. And we want to give thanks to you and to bless and praise your holy name. Because, Lord, you are good. Your steadfast love endures forever. And your faithfulness to all the generations. We're amazed this morning, Lord, that you are good and faithful. Now we can run to Jesus. And this morning I pray that you would help us as we seek to hear from you and your strong word, your powerful words that have the ability by your grace and through your spirit to change hearts and minds. We've experienced that here at Redemption Hill. And people are experiencing that around the world today. And Lord, we want to see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we're going to be starting a series in the book of Philippians, commonly known as the Epistle of Joy. Paul wrote this letter amidst his own persecution and imprisonment. And he wrote to a church that was anxious about Paul's circumstances about one of their own church members who had fallen severely ill and even their own adversity experienced through believing in and trusting in and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yet in just four short chapters, Paul talks about joy and rejoicing over 13 times. And one of the key verses is found in chapter four, verse four. Paul commands, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say, Rejoice. It seems crazy to us to think of shackles and sickness or poverty and persecution as an environment where joy can ever be experienced, much less sustained. But we know the answer, right? You've heard it before. Joy is not based on our circumstances, and that is true. And although that's true, we ought to think of it in this way God's powerful grace to you, which is what joy is and the source of joy, where it comes from, God's powerful grace to you is not blocked by the wickedness of this world. It is undeniable that we are today living in wicked times. The sexual revolution, the approval of abortion, human trafficking, pervasive pornography, compromising churches, blatant injustice, and even the erosion of freedoms. But everyone who follows Christ needs to know that God's grace breaks through to you. It shines bright and the darkness will not overcome it. That does not mean that circumstances change immediately or ever even in this temporary life. But if your faith is in Christ alone for salvation, then you are not alone. God is with you and as King David saying, in your presence is fullness of joy forevermore. 
here at Redemption Hill, we are experiencing a lot of excitement, a lot of growth, not just in number, but in depth, in maturity, and in Christ-likeness. And part of the way God grows us is through trial. It's through hardship. It's through persecution. Although we do not know what the Lord has in store for us tomorrow, we very well may be entering a stage in church history where our situation mirrors that of Paul and this Philippian church. And if that be the case, how will you respond? How will you respond? Will you crumble under the weight of wickedness? Or will you stand firm in God's grace? Will you be anxious about the sinfulness of man? Or will you be rejoicing in the faithfulness of our God? What about the trials that you're facing already today? Maybe for you, it's a difficult marriage, an unsure future, an overwhelming workload, or maybe even financial pressures. These trials are like a hot cup of water and our heart like a tea bag. And when we enter these trials, we're dipped in and what's inside permeates. It breaks through and it's revealed what's going on on the inside. Are you wallowing or are you rejoicing? We need the book of Philippians. So we come to this very personal, friendship-style letter of Paul's to the church at Philippi, the first church ever planted in Europe, and we ask, how can Paul be joyful in the face of not merely inconvenience, not merely injustice, injury, and imprisonment, but even the real possibility of execution? What is the basis for Paul's joy? What's the secret, Paul? Is it a positive attitude? Maybe self-determination, escaping reality to find your happy place? Or maybe it's just, you know, that's Paul's personality type. Maybe he found a therapy group in prison. Although we're not only going to, co- we're not covering the whole book this morning, we're only getting the brief introduction of this letter. In just the first two verses, Paul's already introducing key ingredients for the basis of rejoicing always. Let's read together Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and let's seek to discover these ingredients for the basis of joy in the Christian life. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Our first ingredient we see in this text already, just the introduction, is that joy is found in serving Christ as Lord. Joy is found in serving Christ as Lord. And we see this in two ways, just in verse one. We see it in the author and in the audience. First, let's look at the author. Paul is the author of this letter, and even in this short epistle, he gives a huge update about what's going on in his ministry while he's in prison, but he also gives a detailed history in chapter three of his own personal accomplishments, which he counts as rubbish. Clearly, Paul is the author, and he includes Timothy, who was there when this church was planted as a either co-author or possibly a scribe, helping him write this letter to the church at Philippi. 
And he identifies them, both of them, as servants of Christ Jesus. This word servants is translated this way and has a wide range of meaning. New Testament scholar Gordon Fee comments, while servant found in most English translations is acceptable rendering, it also causes the English reader to lose something of its force. For the reader of this letter, the Philippian church originally, this would have only meant slave, those owned by and subservient to the master of a household. It's easy for us to have a negative connotation to the word slave. We think of an involuntary victim whose freedom is stolen and who is mistreated. But that is not how Paul is using the term slave at all in this passage. Rather, he means a willing and joyful service for Christ. Paul was not referring to a job where he could check in and check out. Paul was not referring to owning his own freedom, but rather belonging to and being owned by Jesus Christ. And we see this theme all throughout the letter of Philippians. It's scattered. In chapter 1 alone, you can see in verse 13, if you scroll your eyes down, he says, My imprisonment is for Christ. And then in 16, I am put here for the defense of the gospel. In 18, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. In verse 20, he wants Christ to be honored. That's his goal, his desire. And then later in verse 23 and 24 of chapter 1, he says, I desire to be with Christ. There's a special relationship here that's different than what connotations we think of with slave. But the title, Slave of Christ Jesus, contains the idea of humility and of servitude to its master, to, your, to their master. And this theme of the letter is really in everything Paul wants to say, anything that he does, anything he experiences, all of life is in, of, by, and for Christ Jesus. The good, the bad, and the ugly, everything. It's all for Christ. He expresses the idea that they are bound to Christ as slaves are bound to their master, but whose slavery is expressed in loving service on behalf of Christ for the Philippians and others. But not only do we want to see this idea of serving Christ as Lord in the identity of the author, but also we see this idea of serving Christ as Lord in the audience as well. Look at the second half of verse one. It says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. Within this title that he gives the Philippian church, saints, we'll see that this same concept of servitude, of belonging to and living for Christ is included. But first, we must recognize who he's writing to. He's writing to the church at Philippi, which was between Greece and modern-day Turkey. And as we mentioned earlier, it was the first church he ever planted in Europe. And in Acts 16, you can see the story that Paul comes through to this Macedonian area, and he's on his second missionary journey with Timothy, with Luke, and with Silas. And really, there's a conversion story of about three different people. He, he interacts with a businesswoman, an ex-demon-possessed sorceress, a jailer, and possibly some inmates. And that's really the church plant crew, a pretty motley crew to start a church plant with. But he writes to them here, and he says, saints. They are all saints in Christ 
Jesus. We think of the word saint as a certain level of achieved holiness, but the Bible says that all believers are identified as saints. This word simply means to set apart. A holy people, often the Old Testament referring to God's people. And as we've seen in Exodus, in Exodus 19 verse 6, that God is calling out for himself a people who are to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a people consecrated and subject to Yahweh and his service. Christ is both responsible for making them the people of God and is the present sphere of their existence. That's why he says the saints in Christ Jesus. These Philippian believers belong to Christ because of Christ. And now that they belong to him, their life is to be lived for Christ. He also mentions two leadership functions in the church. He mentions overseers and deacons. And there's no specific teaching on either of these roles in this letter. And conveniently, Paul actually leaves out the title of apostle, not trying to throw any weight around, but humbling himself, presenting himself as a slave of Christ, and likewise, just acknowledging the leadership that's established at this church and wanting to come alongside them and to be a friend, to talk with them through thinking biblically. And here in these roles that he identifies, these are delegated authorities from Christ, who Paul calls the chief shepherd. These are people that are underneath Christ, who is the head of the church, and they are stewards of God's given ministry. They are slaves. They are servants. All that they have is because of Christ, and they are given any authority. It's from Christ to do his work, to serve him. So in this title of servant, in the title of saint, and overseer, and deacon, they all share this same thread. Serving, belonging to someone else. And it's amazing there's this unity in the and and the all and the with that they all serve one master. They all have one master and that's Christ Jesus. And that's what the title Lord means, which we'll get to later in this letter, that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's identifying that they're serving someone, which implies a master, and Jesus Christ is their master. So the question for us this morning ought to be, who are you serving? Better yet, who is your master? Maybe you're thinking this morning, I hear you, I know what you're saying, but Paul was an apostle. He was a missionary. His life was fully dedicated. He's in full-time service to the Lord, so that's, that's easy for him to proclaim this and to even call this out for other believers to say, all of life should be dedicated to Christ. We should have one master whom we serve, but you gotta understand, I have a work life, and it's stressful, it's difficult. I have a home life, a spouse, roommates, kids, siblings, these relationships are difficult, and they take a lot of time, and they get in the way of all the things that I need to do and even we're supposed to do. And then on top of that, then I add church life. I try to serve and be involved. It's really hard. Paul actually might have it easier. Matthew chapter six says, Jesus is speaking, 
It says, no one can serve two masters. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other. He will be devoted to the one and despise the other. We need to recognize this morning that you are serving a master, one master. And when we pile up the responsibilities, and when we make excuses, what we're saying is, I don't want Jesus to be my master, I'm in charge, and I'm stressed out and I can't handle it, so I'm gonna complain about it. But we need to recognize the litmus test there is not a problem with the master of Jesus Christ, but the problem is we're trying to take his place. We're displacing the one true master. You can only have one. When we come to these issues of life, we need to really think through, who am I trusting in? Who am I relying on? When difficult situations come up, when I'm dealing with sin in my own personal life, am I trusting in Christ's word? Am I running to him in prayer? Am I relying on my master or am I trying to do it, pull myself up by my bootstraps? Do it my own way, I'm gonna figure this out, I'm gonna work my way through it, I'm gonna rely on myself. Self-reliance will not produce joy. Self-reliance won't get the task done and make you feel like you're actually at rest, as we'll see. It starts with being a slave of Christ and recognizing that there is joy in loving service to your master and recognizing that I need to submit to his will and his way in every area of my life. Every area. If I hold something back and say, well, I'll manage this part, you're rebelling against your one master and you're putting yourself on the throne. We need to understand that joy is not gonna come from self-service. It's from being a servant for Christ. Will you seek to serve, enjoy, and love your master, Jesus Christ, in every area of your life? The first ingredient for the basis of joy in the Christian life is that joy is found in serving Christ as Lord. And we see that in both the author and the audience of this letter, but in this introduction, there's also a greeting. Paul includes a greeting, which we find here in verse two, and in this greeting, Paul identifies a second ingredient for the basis of joy. Look with me at verse two. Paul writes, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Our second ingredient that we see this morning is that joy is found in receiving Christ as Lord. Paul writes grace to you in peace and he wants them to have something from God. He wants them to recognize grace and peace. This greeting would have called the audience's attention preeminently to the essence of the Christian message. That's grace. Grace by definition is a gift. It's not something deserved or merited or earned. It's God's favor. In Paul's mind, this term grace summarized the power of God at work in his world and in his people to bring about his will. Paul, in desiring this for the church at Philippi, is wanting the greatest possible good for them. He's showing love for God's people. But this grace that he mentions is grace to you, not in the past tense, 
So not just drawing their focus back to the heart of the gospel, but also the heartbeat of the gospel that continues to pulse forth. This is sanctifying grace. This is sustaining and strengthening grace for today. Sanctifying grace is grace that makes us more like Jesus. Jesus is lifted up as an example of a servant in chapter 2, verse 5. This idea of sanctifying grace is flushed out as well when Paul expresses the empowerment of humility that comes from God's grace. When he talks about casting out confidence in the flesh and any accomplishments he had in the past, he's showing what sanctifying grace looks like in his own personal life in chapter 3. And in chapter 4, he's talking about sanctifying grace when he's asking church members at Philippi to resolve their strife and their conflict because it's by the grace of God that they can pursue peace with one another. He talks about sustaining and strengthening grace, which is grace that causes us as believers to reliantly endure with Christ. He talks about it in chapter 1 as striving side by side. He talks about it as an emboldenedness to face the difficulties of life. He talks about forgetting what lies behind and straining forward. That's strengthening grace. And he summarized it in chapter four when he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's sustaining grace. That's grace that for a believer, we delight in, we need. We are weak. This morning when we're singing, come to Jesus when you're weak. I know I wasn't the only one feeling that this morning, feeling weak. But we can run to Jesus who is strong and kind and he gives us the grace we need to do and accomplish his will in this world. And it's because of strengthening and enduring grace that we can as Paul commands through God's word, to rejoice always. To rejoice in the Lord always. This is grace that makes us holy and takes us all the way to the end when we will be one day with our Savior. This is the grace Paul describes in chapter 1, verse 6, when he says, God will bring this good work to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. But notice there, right before, he says, this all starts with saving grace, which is a gift of God. In verse 6, he says, He who began, he being God, who began a good work in you. To have access to ask the Father and rely on him for sanctifying and strengthening grace, you have to have saving grace you need to receive the gospel. You may have heard the content of the gospel, or even this last week during our baptism service, heard others talk about their experience of receiving the gospel. But you personally have to receive this saving grace. God is your creator. He is holy and righteous, and you know it. God's word says it, and it's imprinted on your heart. God's word also says in Romans, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This morning, you know your sinfulness. We try to cover it. We try to mask it. 
but this morning you know that you are a sinner and that God is holy. But right after that verse in Romans 3, in verse 24, Paul continues by saying, all that are made right with God, that are justified, are made right in this way. He says, by God's grace as a gift. Your problem cannot be fixed on your own. But God offers you a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Ephesians talks of this grace when Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. That's trusting in the gift and the promise of God. That this is not your own doing, but it's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This morning, if you're hearing about this saving grace and wondering, why is it a gift? It's because God gets all the credit. He gets all the glory for salvation from start to finish. You can't do it on your own, but you can receive an amazing gift of grace and salvation. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin, what you've earned by your sinfulness is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord, our Master. John is talking to Nicodemus in these verses that are all too familiar, but listen to them again. For God so loved the world that he gave, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The saving grace that redeems you, that cleanses you, that makes you right with a holy God is forever. And you will enjoy eternity with him if you cast yourself at his feet, ask for mercy that you don't deserve, and trust in Christ alone who died to pay for your sins and was raised again so that you too can have new life. This promise is most clear in Romans chapter 10 verse nine. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We receive this saving grace by faith. What is stopping you this morning from receiving God's saving grace? Cast yourself upon his mercy and he will give you rest. In Romans chapter five, Paul concludes that Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that's those who have received this saving grace, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And peace is secondarily what Paul mentions here when he says grace to you in verse two, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace is the culmination of what is accomplished by God's grace. God is the source of our spiritual well-being. And through saving grace, we receive peace with God. But also during this life, by his grace, we can receive peace with others that he talks about in chapter four and reconciling between believers within the church. And he talks about peace in your own personal life. A peace that we all want, but struggle to find. And he's telling us where the source is. 
God is the source of peace. It's interesting, Paul displays this peace later in this chapter when he's amidst trial, possibly going to be executed for defending Christ. They're sharpening the axe. The accusations are loading up against him. And you know what Paul's heart and mind attitude is? He says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Think about the peace in that statement. Paul's in a win-win. He knows who his master is. He belongs to him. And every breath he has is sustained by Christ himself. So he doesn't have to worry. Right now, he's got his marching orders. And as long as he lives, it's for Christ. And if his life is to end, that's joy forevermore. He also instructs the Philippian church to desire and experience this peace in their own personal life. In chapter four, verse six, he says, do not be anxious about anything, anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the peace he desires for this church, both at Philippi and for us today. Are you resting in the grace and peace that God has for you today? Are you requesting God's grace and peace in your own personal life? Do you ask in faith for it? So often in our Christian life, we know the truths about salvation and we move on from the cross, we move on from grace, we move on from peace, thinking it's just my job to take it from here to the end. God handed me the baton and I'm running. That's not true. And we miss out on so many joys and pleasures in this life that God has planned because we don't rely on his grace and pray for his grace and rest in his peace today. Are you receiving God's grace or are you relying on your own strength? Paul's letter to the church at Philippi is all about joyfully serving Christ. And right out the gate, he sets the table for a friendship-style counseling conversation where he is modeling a heart and mind of a servant of Christ. And he's inviting them to a life dependent on Christ. To experience the joy of the Lord must be serving and receiving Christ as Lord. May we each individually and corporately here at Redemption Hill be so captivated, so submitted to our Lord and Master that we would delight in a life of serving and receiving him a life of belonging to and depending on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you you are Lord. You are Lord of all. And we come to you this morning asking that you would help us 
to not be so naive to think that we can take it from here. We need your grace. We are dependent on you each step of the way. And Lord, as we seek to be good stewards of the grace that you give, we ask for more, knowing that you delight to give good gifts to your children. We ask for your strength and help that we would strive to be diving into your word to know your will, your ways. We so quickly try to interpret our circumstances and our own intellect and our own strength, and we neglect to remember that we are slaves of your son, Jesus Christ. That you have called us by his name to be united in the body of Christ and to live a life that in every area is submitted to you, reliant on you, we ask that you would help us to walk in this way, to walk worthy of the calling with which you've called us. We love you, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.